So was, there, was this, um, there was this boy who asked this cute girl to go to prom. And surprisingly, she said yes. And so he, <clears throat> excuse me, he had to, uh, you know, he had, he had to go and get the prom ticket. So he went to, to wherever you get the prom ticket. And when he got there, there was this huge ticket line. So he had to wait in line. Finally, he got to the front line and he got a couple of prom tickets for them. Well, the next thing he had to do is he had to go rent his tux. <clears throat> so he went to the tux shop. And when he got to the tux shop, there was this big old tux line and he had to wait in the tux line and finally he got fitted for his tux and it was nice and he looked good. Um, and then, you know, he's like, you know, I should probably get her some flowers. So he went to the flower shop and we got to the flower shop, of course. At the flower shop, there was this big old line to get flowers. So he waited in this long flower line and finally got flowers and they were beautiful and he gave them to her and she was just ecstatic about going to prom and they got to the prom and as they were trying to get in, there was this big prom line that they had to get through, and they finally got through. And, and, and then, you know, they were dancing, they were having a good time, and she goes, hey, let's go take a picture. So they went to, uh, <clears throat> they went to take a picture, but there was such a long picture line that, you know, they ended up having to wait in this picture line, and they finally got there, and, you know, they had this cute picture where she was kind of like this, and, um, you know, they got their picture taken. And then, you know, they kept dancing, they kept having a good time, and she was like, yeah, you know, I'm really, really thirsty. Would you mind going to get me some punch? And so he went to get her some punch, and there was no punchline. Okay. Uh, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you for humor. Thank you for fun. Thank you for your love. God, and as we come here today and as we worship you on this Palm Sunday, Lord, I just pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> well, the title of this sermon is called the untriumphal entry. And I'm pretty sure untriumphal is actually not actually a word, but I'm using it. And um, yeah, that's that. And you'll see kind of why, but um, I'm going to read uh, a scripture from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. And, and what I want you to do is I really want you to use your imagination. <clears throat> and I know that's hard for adults sometimes, but I want you to use your imagination and really just like picture yourself being there. So, so think about what you're seeing. Maybe put yourselves in the shoes of one of the disciples and think about what you're seeing. Think about the things that you're hearing. Think about maybe some of the smells or, um, you know, these sensory objects that you're touching, whatever it is. And and so as I read this, you can look, you can um, read it along with me, or you can close your eyes and just imagine yourself kind of being in the shoes of these disciples. So let's read from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. It says this, <clears throat> Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on, sorry, a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. 
And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those who were standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let, him, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So I think many of us see this story and maybe picture it in our minds as, as this kind of, kind of this cartoonish parade, right? Where Jesus is on this donkey and it's this nice sunny day. And Jesus is kind of taking his new donkey for a ride. And, you know, there's people there and they're laying down palm branches and their cloaks and they're kind of throwing confetti and, you know, they're running around, the children are running around tickling Jesus's beard with their palm branches. And it's kind of this, you know, this lighthearted, almost cartoonish type of scene. <clears throat> but I'm going to uh, almost guarantee you that most of you have not imagined this as a three-act political satire. And that's how I'm going to talk about it today. And so um, I guess, yeah, buckle up a little bit because we're going to talk about it in a little bit different way. And I'm actually, at the end of this, I'm going to ask you, we're going to read it again, and I'm going to ask you to kind of reimagine maybe how you imagined it the first time. But all of you should have gotten to palm branches, and so if you didn't, there's some that are... Um, that are out in the lobby, and you can, you can go snag those um, kind of maybe more towards when we, when we do Eucharist, if you want to go snag one of those real quick. Um, and, and then you should have got a Sharpie marker as well with those. But So most of us know this story, right? Most of us know the Palm Sunday story, the story of Jesus kind of going into Jerusalem and laying their palm branches down. Uh, but I would also say that most of us know where the story leads, Right? Most of us know kind of the end of this story that five days later, the same man riding on this donkey is now hanging on a tree. So what happened in the span of five days for this 180 degree turn of events? What was the thing? Well, I'm going to try and uh, walk us through this a little bit. So act one, setting the scene. You know, when I was in high school, we would do a, um, I went to a small, I was, I grew up in a small town, I went to a small school, and we did a homecoming parade. And so with this homecoming parade, you know, each class would make a float, and we'd have the marching band, and everybody from the town would kind of go out, and we'd, we'd literally walk through the town, and people would cheer, and we'd throw candy, and the, the king and the queen would ride in like the, the you know, the Camaro that didn't have a top on it, and, um, and you know, and they're waving at people, and people are cheering, and, um, you know, and I think some of us, some of you guys maybe know, kind of have this sense of what I'm talking about in some ways. Um, but, but here's the scene that's actually happening in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem right now is the Passover. And the Passover is this festival, okay? So they're on the, I think they're on the eve of the Passover. And the Passover is this festival where people from all over Israel, all over Judea and Samaria, they're coming, they're pilgriming, pilgr they're taking a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, 
Okay, and so Jerusalem goes from about, I think probably about, I was reading this and there's some debate on it, but about 50,000 people to, to maybe over 500,000 people in this, uh, during this time. And so, and so it's this festival, and it's, and it's not just any festival. The Passover festival is the festival for the Israelite people. It's like, it's like a story that is central to their, to their narrative. It's a story that's central to who they are. And, and so the Passover festival is actually the festival that they're celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. And so it's God's delivering them from Egypt. So th- there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem at this time. And, and they're just celebrating this and anticipating this, um, this deliverance. And, and so, you know, if you didn't know kind of this story, this Passover story, it would be kind of like not knowing maybe like Star Wars in our time. Or maybe it, it, if you don't know Star Wars, I'm sorry, but it, maybe it's more like if you were an American, not knowing why we celebrate the 4th of July. See, this is how central their story was to who they were. This, this, this uh, deliverance from Egypt and, um, and, and the people in Jerusalem, this is what the, they were celebrating this Passover festival. And so there's tons of people there. Um, and another part of the scene is that Jesus, Jesus is orchestrating this whole, this whole thing. And you can see that in the, in the passage. But even, even all throughout Mark, you can see that leading up to this, to this place where Jesus is, is walking and, and, and he's walking towards the cross. So, from the beginning, where John the Baptist prepares the way to where he calls his disciples to follow him on the way as he makes his way to Jerusalem and embraces the way of the cross. And there are a bunch of stories kind of leading up to this moment at the cross where people didn't quite see clearly. You see, that they, they were catching glimpses of this cruciform way, but they never really fully comprehended what this way was leading to. We tend to focus kind of on the final events of this passage where Jesus is walking through Jerusalem and people are laying down their palm branches and their coats and everything like that. But there's actually seven, seven out of this 11 verse, uh, 11 verse passage, there's actually seven verses kind of devoted to this preparation of this. And so we tend to find... So we tend to find ourselves in these final verses, but the, the first seven verses, they show these arrangements that Jesus was making for this event. And this shows us that Jesus is actually orchestrating these events in advance. Like it's very specific. He, he says, go get, this, go get this cult. And when you get this cult, if somebody asks you about it, say this. And that's exactly what happens. And so Jesus is kind of like orchestrating all of, this, all of these events of what's happening. And I think this is really important because it shows that Jesus knew exactly what he was walking into, when really nobody else probably did. You know, the donkey, this image of the donkey, it's a colt. Um, and, and so it's not even like a full-grown donkey, it's like a baby donkey. <laughs> and so if you can imagine Jesus riding on the colt, which, you know, he was almost probably bigger. He was, he's probably riding on this and his feet are almost dragging on the ground as he's going. Um, and, and as he's going, there's he has no... He has no weapon in hand. He has no sword, no staff, nothing. He just is riding on this donkey. And, and, and you can kind of imagine this image of Jesus going through these crowds with this donkey. And, and it's funny because this is not the typical picture of what a Messiah 
who's coming to kind of rid them of their oppressors would look like. You know, and he starts at the Mount of Olives, which is really uh, actually pretty significant because this is the traditional location of the expected final battle. And Jesus knew this, right? Jesus knew all of these things. As he's, as he's preparing these things in advance, he knew exactly what he was doing. And, and so he, he starts from this place, and, and so people are like, oh, there, you know, it's the Mount of Olives. He's coming from the Mount of Olives, and they're excited about what's going to happen, and, you know, this has been foretold, and... Um, but what he's doing is he's carefully orchestrating a piece of street theater. It's almost a parody of sorts to what the expectation really is. Because here's Jesus, instead of riding in on a horse, holding a sword, he's riding in on a donkey with no weapon in hand. And then you've got to think about the Roman Empire context. So you see, Jesus was not simply walking into a homecoming parade. He wasn't just shaking hands and campaigning while his disciples handed out candy and these hats that said, vote for Jesus. Jesus was walking into a politically charged city. And it was full of people ready to be liberated from Roman rule. The Romans had taken over Israel. Farmers with no land were being burdened with taxes, businesses exploited, the oppression that took place was really unbearable. The whole country was under the weight, under the boot of this Roman oppressor. And anybody who tried to do anything about it usually ended up on a cross. And so reimagine this story. Jesus is walking into a mob of people who are ready to make him king. See, I love parades. But this is not some cartoonish parade where people are tickling each other with palm branches. This is a political insurrection. And here's Jesus riding in to take possession of Jerusalem, unarmed and riding on a colt. If, if you understand the context, you'll understand how comical this actually is. So as Jesus is riding in um, to this mob, sorry, this is, this is Act 2. We're going to move to Act 2, the untriumphal entry. And as Jesus is riding into this mob of Israelites, verses 8 through 10 say this, And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields, and hear this part right here, okay? And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. They were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're shouting, Hosanna. They're going before him and they're going behind him and they're shouting, Hosanna. And I know that sometimes we understand Hosanna to kind of be this lighthearted, beautiful song of praise. You know, it's where we're worshiping Jesus and praising him. And I think it is that. But I wonder if this Hosanna was more like a war chant from these people. Hosanna in the Hebrew was Hoshana, which means, Hosha means save us, and Na means 
now or please. And so imagine a people who are completely desperate. They're on their last straw with the powers that be. They're tired of being burdened by this oppressor. They're fired up about the coming Messiah, the one who is supposed to deliver them, to save them from their oppressor. And can you imagine them saying it in this way? Ho-sha-na! 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 We know that the reality is that Jesus dies. The climactic expectation of a political insurrection ends with a very anticlimactic ending where nothing happens. There's no punchline. Or so we think. Have you ever been in that desperate place where you need Jesus to act on your behalf? Maybe you've even cried, save me now, only to be let down. You see, I think the amped up mob is really a reflection of our own lives. And we start to have these specific ideas of who Jesus should be in our life and how he should act. And we want him to act in those ways. And so whether it's in our lives or with our families or maybe it's in our jobs, but what happens is we end up crucifying the real Jesus for an imaginary Jesus. A Jesus that we can control and that we can tell what he should do for us. A Jesus that will fit into our kingdom. And the one that we are building. So we have these specific ideas about who we want Jesus to be in our lives. And we yell, ho, sha, na. Save us now. But Jesus is coming to establish a different kind of kingdom. See, I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, and uh, my, my opinion is it's a work of literary genius. It's so good, and to this day, still one of my favorite stories. Um, but throughout the series, the protagonist, Harry, is battling the antagonist, Voldemort. And Voldemort is searching frantically for the path of immortality and absolute power. He goes as far as actually taking pieces of his soul and placing it in these objects in order to ensure that no matter what happens to him, he will always survive. And then he attempts to get this wand of great power, which is called the Elder Wand. And so he's going through all these things, and he's doing this in order to destroy Harry, but also just to escape death. He seeks to rule through power, through fear and force and violence, and to escape death. But there's this beautiful moment in the story where Harry realizes that the only way to defeat Voldemort is to embrace death, to accept it, to walk toward it, and to embrace it like an old friend. And as he dies, a piece of Voldemort that is also within him dies, and he is raised back to life, and he's able to defeat Voldemort. Sorry, spoiler warning. It's been out for 10 years. If you haven't seen it, sorry. Um, does this sound familiar? In, Ma in, 
in Matthew, it says this, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You see, I think this is the key difference between the kingdom of God that Jesus embodies and has come to establish in this world and the kingdoms of this world. This, This is the key right here, is that Jesus has brought a new kingdom. And he's not establishing it through political violence. He's not establishing it through religious power or even through economic security. He establishes his kingdom reign through self-giving love. And it's a kingdom of shalom, a peaceable kingdom. And this peaceable kingdom does not come about through violence. Like the crowds, we, we misunderstand Jesus. <laughs> you know, his closest friends, his disciples, actually, I, I'm not even sure they knew what was going on in this moment. I, I would wager to say that they probably didn't. They probably were caught up in the moment chanting Hoshana as much as the crowds were. He did not liberate the people of Israel through force. Instead, he liberated all of creation through death. This is not a triumphant entry in the way that the world would understand victory, but it was a triumphant, it was a triumph in the sense that Jesus triumphs over death by dying. See, the people wanted to make Sorry, the people wanted Jesus to make Israel into a great nation again. To take them back to the kingdom of their ancestor, David. It says that. In, um, it says, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They had it wrong. They wanted to take Israel back to the glory days. And Jesus comically was saying, no, I'm coming to do something new. Jesus was coming to establish a new kind of kingdom, not the, not the kingdom of David, not the kingdom of Solomon or of Babylon or of Rome or even of America, but the kingdom of God, the peaceful kingdom. And as the crowds chanted, save us now, what they didn't realize is that Jesus was saving them. See, this is the comedy of it all, is that Jesus knew all along, that he was saving them, but nobody else knew that. It just wasn't in the way that they expected. Act three, the road not taken. Robert Frost has probably one of the most iconic poems, uh, probably most, it is the most popular poem, I think, in history, Far it exceeds a lot of these other poems, even if other poems may have, uh, have more weight in our, in our modern era. But um, th- this poem, you, you actually can kind of check the search history on Google for poems, and this is like way above every other poem. But the funny thing about this poem is that most people misunderstand it. In fact, if I asked you the name of this poem, most of you would probably say, oh yeah, it's The Road Less Traveled. Well, that's actually not the name of the poem. 
And I'm with you there because I typed in the road less traveled when I was looking for this poem on Google. But this poem is actually called The Road Not Taken. And, and the interesting thing about this is that this, these last three lines of the poem, which will, you, you, everybody will know here, is two roads diverged in a wood and I took the one last traveled by. And that has made all the difference. And so most people see this poem as this like individualistic triumph of, yeah, I took the road that nobody else took. You know, like I, I'm a unique individual. Um, but that's really not the point of the, not, not really the point of the poem at all. In fact, um, if you go back and read the, the whole poem, the, it's, it's not about that. It's, it's about actually this, this longing and this regret for maybe what could have been. And, um, you know, the funny thing about this poem is that it turns out that Frost knew most people would miss the point. In fact, he, <laughs> this is funny, he actually wrote this poem as a joke for his friend. And so he wrote this poem as a joke for his friend, Edward Thomas, and, and they would walk together in the woods, and Thomas was always chronically indecisive about which road he ought to take. And in retrospect, he often lamented that he should have, in fact, taken the other road. And, and so Ro Robert Frost wrote this poem for him, and even his friend, when he read his poem, he didn't get it. He misunderstood it. And then this poem kind of turned into this really iconic poem that everybody knows, even though Frost wrote it as somewhat of a joke. And this joke is almost as good as the joke of Jesus riding in on a colt on a donkey from the Mount of Olives, no weapon in hand, coming to rid the Israelites of their Roman oppressors. So what went wrong? Jesus goes from being a political revolutionary. He's the talk of the town. He's the one people cried, save us now, to then five days later being crucified. So what happened in the span of five days to turn the tables in such a way? Well, Jesus takes the road less traveled. <clears throat> he literally diverges his route to the throne, and instead he heads to the temple. So if you can imagine this mob of people following Jesus, going ahead of Jesus, shouting Hosanna as he's going up there, and then all of a sudden he's like, I'm actually going to go this way. And he goes to the temple. And this is, this is probably the most comical part to me, is that he gets to the temple and it says this. He has the temple and he doesn't lead a revolution against Rome. Instead, he goes to the temple, he looks around, and he goes home. <laughs> like, no punchline. Can you imagine how frustrating this would be? If you're the people that thought he really was the one, I'm sure you can imagine. I'm sure your experience of who Jesus should be in your life have at time, or your expectations of who Jesus in your life, who should, Jesus should be in your life has not been met. But there is a punchline. He does lead a revolution against the violence and the power and the security of all empires. And this is what happens the next day. <clears throat> Jesus makes his way back into the temple and, and is literally flipping tables. The temple was not just any place. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a lot like this. Um, but the temple was this place where people, so many people gathered and there was a lot of, um, there, there was a lot of uh, 
economics connected to the temple and people would sell things and buy things. And especially as these people uh, who were coming in from Passover, they, for Passover, they couldn't like bring their own animals. So they would go to the temple. And, and what would happen is when they would get to the temple, the people in the temple who were selling these animals to be um, the offerings would jack up the prices on them. And so that they would have to, um, they would have to basically you know, spend as much money as they could in order to get whatever animal they needed um, to sacrifice. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's turning, he's flipping these tables, and, and what he's doing is that the temple, see, the temple was the way that the Jewish leaders, they maintained control. It was their economic security, their political right. They held power over others, and, and Jesus is, is flipping the whole thing upside down. He's saying within this that his kingdom is upside down. His way is not the the way of violence and power and security. What happens in the temple is really just a microcosm of what Jesus is doing in all of creation. Richard Rohr has this quote, and he says, Bad people didn't kill Jesus. Conventional wisdom crucified him. Jesus taught an alternative wisdom instead of the maintenance of social order. Prophets and wisdom teachers like Jesus have passed through a major death to their ego. This is the core meaning of transformation. You know, last week, Peter talked about Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. Sometimes we tame this lion. We declaw the lion. And and he shared this beautiful story about how this guy named Vincent Donovan went to this tribe, um, the Maasai tribe in, in, um, in Africa, and he was sharing the story with them. And, and what happened, though, is that as he was sharing the gospel with them, they, they said, that, you know what? It, we're not chasing after the lion. The lion is chasing after us and consuming us. And so Jesus is this lion, but he's a lion and he has this power and he's conquering through the giving up of his own life. David Orr is a poetry columnist for the New York Times and he says this about um, the road not taken. He says the poem is both is and isn't about individualism. And it both is and isn't about rationalization. It isn't a wolf in sheep's clothing so much as a wolf that is somehow also a sheep or a sheep that is also a wolf. And so people have called this poem kind of the biggest uh, wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, and here's this, this columnist saying, no, it's, it's both. It's not one or the other, it's both. And this really struck me because I think uh, in Revelation chapter 5, John is getting this vision and, and they're trying to open the, the seven seals and they're saying, who is worthy to open these seven seals? And, and people start weeping because nobody is worthy to open these. And then all of a sudden they say, ah, the lion, the tribe of Judah is worthy to open the seals. And it's this beautiful moment because if you read it really closely, it says, and then John looks and he sees a slaughtered lamb. And so Jesus, God, God, sorry, God isn't a lion in sheep's clothing. God is a lion and God is the lamb. The lamb is worthy not because he took up the mantle of power, but rather because he laid down his power. He laid down his own agenda. He laid down his life. 
God conquers by riding on a donkey's colt, unarmed, so that he can lay down his life for all. Epilogue. Your turn. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus' way is different than the Israelite way. Jesus' way is different than the Roman way. It's different than the Babylonian way. It's different than the American way. It's different than the Chris way. It's different than the Peter way. You see, the local congregation is a, it's a place where, where the Jesus way gets integrated into the community. It's a place where we can remind each other weekly of the Jesus way. It's a place where we can embody the Jesus way. Not the way of power and violence and security, of control, but the way where we can lay down our lives, where we can lay down our own kingdoms, and we can take up the cross. You know, this week in Boulder, there was just senseless act of violence. Um, I think, you know, the sad thing is that in the wake of this, we start to jump to different sides of guns or no guns, you know, and I think what ends up happening is that that becomes the American way. And we lose sight of the Jesus way in the midst of this. And the Jesus way looks a lot like this guy named Ted who lives in Boulder, who lives close to this grocery store, who made his way down there. He knows some of the some of the clerks there, and he made his way down there after this and um, just took time to pray for people, took time to pray for the city, took time to remember that the kingdom of God is conquering, even when it seems like it's not. And I'm not standing up here trying to get you to believe a, sp a specific political idea. If I was doing that, I'd be the same as the crowd. This story, it's a political satire. <laughs> it's a divine comedy because Jesus is saying, don't you see? My kingdom is not of this world. And that doesn't mean that the kingdom isn't present here. What he's saying is that the means of bringing about this kingdom don't make sense to the world. They're upside down. They're cruciform. They're not about power. They're not about violence. They're not about security. They're not about control. They're cruciform. They're about giving up those things. And so I would ask you this morning, what's hindering you from true worship? What is the kingdom that you're attempting to build through your own power? your own prestige, and how can you lay that down so you can see Jesus for who he truly is, not who you want him to be? <clears throat> we have a very talented artist in our uh, congregation. Thanks, Tim. Tim Rickman, if you don't know him, he 
made this. I want to make sure I'm doing it the right way. Okay. It says, well, you can read what it says. But what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to lay this down right here. And each of you has... Each of you has a palm branch, and each of you has a pen. And what I want you to do is I want you to write on this palm branch a way that you are pursuing your own agenda, a way that you're building your own kingdom, maybe an expectation that you have of who Jesus should be in your life. And what we're going to do is after we move to the table and, and receive Eucharist, I want you guys to come up here and I want you to just lay your palm branch down on this, on this picture right here. And, and what we're going to do with this is, is we're actually going to end up gluing these on there. And so if you want to lay it face up to where we can see the word, that works. If you want to lay it face down to where we can't see it, that works too. But we're going to glue these palm branches on here, and we're actually going to put this up during Easter. Just as a reminder to ourselves that this isn't our kingdom. This is not Chris's kingdom. It's not Peter's kingdom. It's not the sanctuary's kingdom. It's not the American kingdom. What it is, it's the kingdom of God. And as we say, Hoshana, this is appropriate to say, and as we sing songs that say Hosanna, right? This is, this is a song of worship. It's a song of praise. It's a song that's saying, save us now, Jesus. And so, but what we're, what we're saying is we can't save ourselves. And as we're laying down these palm branches, this is in turn what we're saying is that we can't save, our, we can't save ourselves. We can't build our own kingdom. And when we do that, this is what really allows us and truly frees us to worship. This is what truly frees us to worship Christ. So as we move to the table, I want to say this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Right here. The kingdom of God is in this bread and it's in this wine. Because as we participate in the kingdom, we take this bread and we consume it. And we take this wine and we consume it. And this peaceable kingdom of God, this peaceable kingdom that doesn't look like any other kingdom, but is really upside down and contrary to all other kingdoms. As we consume this, we take this on in ourselves. And it not only becomes the kingdom of God, but it becomes the kingdom within. And so as we lay down our palm branches, we surrender our kingdoms whatever one you're trying to build. And as we participate in Eucharist, we take on the kingdom of God. So on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he was with his disciples in the upper room and he took, he did what he always does. He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you.
And in the same way, he took the cup, the cup of the new covenant shed in his blood, and he poured it out. And he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do so in remembrance of me, in remembrance of my kingdom, the peaceful kingdom, the kingdom that is not about power, it's not about violence, it's not about security, it's not about control. As you participate in this, and you ingest it, you lay down your kingdom, and this becomes, this kingdom becomes a part of who you are. And you, not, you don't just ingest it and consume it, but it literally transforms you to become this kingdom for others, for people in Boulder, for people who are hurting, for people who need hope, for people who are crying out, Ho-sha-na, save us now. And he is saving us. There is a punchline. And his punchline is good. And it starts at this table. And so I would encourage you guys today as you come forward and as you grab one of these cups and um, you, know, you can take it back to your seat or you consume it uh, on the spot there and, and then come forward and lay down your palm branches on this. Come forward and lay down your kingdom, your ego, whatever it is you're trying to build and allow, it to, allow yourself to surrender that to God and take up the peaceable kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this, this word, Hoshana. Because it is a word of praise. You are saving us now. You have saved us. But Lord, it's not in the way that we would think. Maybe sometimes, Lord, it's not even in the way that we would want. God, you have come and you have laid down your life for us. And not just us, but for all of creation. Lord, you have delivered us from oppression, from the weight of sin. And you have freed us to walk in your image. You have freed us to walk in your kingdom. Lord, you have said that your kingdom is within so God, can we believe that truth today? That your kingdom of peace is within us. That you are within us. And God, can we lay down our lives before you today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for this political comedy where you stroll into this politically charged atmosphere on a donkey no weapon in hand, as if to say, you don't quite get it, but that's okay. 
because I am going to save you. Even if you don't understand how, I'm going to save you. So God, we're thankful for that. And we pray this in your name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to read the passage one more time from Mark chapter 11, and I want you guys just to imagine it again. Same way you did last time, just imagine yourselves being there. Imagine the the noise that you hear, the hustle and bustle, what you're smelling, all those things as I read this again. Now when they drew near, near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it back. If anyone says to you, what are you doing? Or why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing around, standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. The others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Think about your word that you, or phrase that you put down here. Whatever that was, think about it just for a second. Think about the ways that you attempt to build that, to build your kingdom within that. How does that look throughout your week? And then think about the Jesus way. The way of self-giving love, the way that lays down their life And how does that look? How does that look in your own life? How does that maybe fight against the thing that you laid down here? And the reality is that, you know, that whatever you laid down here is it's not going to disappear like that because you laid a palm branch down. But this is just an act of surrender. And this act of surrender doesn't just happen once a year. It happens every day. And so think of this word throughout your week and continue every day to lay that down and to follow the way of Jesus. Father, thank you for your way. And as we leave here today, can we follow your way? We love you, Lord. We know that you love us and we know that your love is what empowers us and enables us to live in this way. So God, we celebrate that victory and we praise you saying Hosanna. 
saying, save us now. And we thank you, Lord, for doing that. Pray this in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody. Go in the peace of Christ's kingdom this morning.